Well, good morning, Signal Church. It's great to be with you. Um, I consider Darren to be a good friend. Uh, you may or may not know this, but he actually serves on the board of Converge Northeast. And not only are we colleagues in ministry, but we are brothers in Christ, of course, but uh, uh, good friends. And um, uh, we want to pray for him this morning. Uh, because he's had some recent surgery, if you didn't know that, and is just recovering. And so let's pray for speedy recovery for Darren. And that is our topic this morning, is prayer. Uh, but a little bit before I, I jump into the topic, uh, just a little bit about uh, me, besides the formal uh, biographical background, really what my, my responsibilities is in Converge is to come alongside our churches. We have about 100 congregations in the Northeast, all of the New England states, plus um, the eastern half of New York and the northern half of New Jersey. And so it's a privilege for me to come and be with you this morning, uh, even in this interesting time that we live. Uh, the other night we had, a, we had a, 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 an old-fashioned hymn sing at the congregation where Sharon and I attend in Avon, Connecticut, and it's just different. Things are different no matter where we are, in, in church, in personal life, in work life, in school, just everything is different. But you know what? Uh, we can either choose to look at that and, and think about how bad things are, or we can choose to think about what is the opportunity that God has for us through the circumstances. Because I think we need to agree that the circumstances aren't great. But I remember the day that everything hit, March 12, 13, 14. I was doing a pastor's retreat on the Cape, and uh, I started getting phone calls from pastor after pastor in New York, in New Hampshire, in Massachusetts, in Connecticut. Tim, what should we do? The governor is doing this. And all the way back as we were having conversations, I kept praying, God, what are you trying to show us? What are you trying to do? How are you magnifying your name through these circumstances? And God is. At the end of July, I had the privilege, again, in our home church of, of doing baptisms, of people that had come to Christ through the pandemic. And God's at work. And I think we need to remind ourselves that God is at work, say that definitely, and that we need to give him praise and thanksgiving because he is active and at work. And we can choose to be involved in the work that he is doing and allow him to work in us and through us to accomplish his will and purposes in this part of the world. And so again, with that introduction, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. And so I say this again, it is an interesting time in which we live. And we had, had the, the pandemic in which we're, we're living, covid we had the racial matters uh, in the beginning of, of June. And of course, it wasn't that those issues didn't exist. It's just that the George Floyd uh, death ignited something in this country. And, and we're still continuing to wrestle as people, what should we do? And I think there is a message for Christians and how should Christians be actively involved in battling injustice in this world and in this nation. And then as we go into the fall, I know Sharon and I are talking with parents and we're talking with Jenny, just the schools, you know, what are schools doing and the, the schedules or not schedule and is it going to last, is it not going to last and can we go back to work full uh, in, in our offices and not 
And so just the uncertainty in which we live, then we have the prospect of a very contentious presidential election. So what are we to do? I think, again, reminder that we need to choose to be seeing where God is at work and, and, and leaning into that. But as I was thinking about what to bring to you this morning, the topic of prayer came about. Because there are certainly many things that we can be praying for and about. And so I want to look at a story this morning that Jesus gave us, and they're called parables. And uh, I'll read the, the passage of Scripture in a moment. But a couple of questions before we lean into that passage. So why, why do you pray? Why do we pray? Think about that with me. And when we pray, what do we pray for? Does God hear my prayers? Do we expect God to answer our prayers? Now, a little note, side note there about God answering prayer. God answers prayers in ways we don't always expect. You know, think about it simply. It's, it's yes, no, or not yet. Sometimes when God doesn't give us what we want, and emphasis on what we want, we think he's not answering prayer. More on that. Another question regarding prayer is what is our posture? An older word is comportment. What is our posture as we come to God in prayer? And so today, again, I want to look at this story, and it's found in Luke chapter 18. And it's called the parable of the persistent widow. And so let me read this for you. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice though she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nonetheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, this is actually an easy sermon. Because Jesus gives us the answer right up front. He says this way, verse 1, that they should always pray and not give up. Great, I'm done. Well, not yet. I'd like to unpack this story for you. And we're going to do it in a little bit different way. And I want to do a little, what's called a little bit of character and analysis here. And we're going to look at the characters involved in this story because I think it's helpful for us to understand some of the background and some of the characteristics we see coming out of this passage. So first, we have the judge. 
in this time in which this, uh, the scripture was written, this story was told, there were several types of judges. First, you have what was called the Sanhedrin. And I think we've heard that word before. This was actually the, the body, the, the group of, of judges that tried Jesus before his uh, uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And these were made up of, of religious leaders. And again, very pious men. But typically, the greater San, Sanhedrin really focused on larger spiritual matters for the Jewish people. The second type of judge was also uh, a religious body. They were called the lesser Sanhedrin. And again, they were focused on maybe not as important, more regional issues out in the towns and the villages, but nonetheless, they were only focused on religious matters. So you have the greater Sanhedrin and the judges that made that up, the lesser Sanhedrin. But the judge we're talking about in this story is a third type of judge. More like a, a, a local magistrate or a justice of the peace. And these were judges who were appointed by the Romans to try criminal cases. Now, there's a parallel in Jewish society at this time. Because I think we can think of another type of public appointment that was made by the Romans. Tax collectors. And think about how well tax collectors were liked by the Jewish people. Not much. Similar case here, the judges that were appointed by the Romans, they weren't well liked, nor were they well respected. So Jesus is very descriptive of this judge in this passage. He says it this way, he neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Great. Man, I'd love to go to a judge like that, right? You would want someone who is genuinely interested in hearing what cases come before, yet neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Jesus is in effect saying, this man willfully and explicitly ignored the first and second of the great commandments. That is, to love God and love your neighbor. Jesus, in verse 6, calls him unjust. Again, why would I want to go to this guy? So he's painting a picture of a person while in a position of great authority was absolutely despicable. Someone completely devoid of human decency or compassion. One commentator describes these types of judges this way. They were the worst of all notoriously lacking in both morals and scruples. They were paid large salaries out of the temple treasury, even though they were appointed uh, by Romans, and they were typically Gentiles and unbelievers. The Jews generally regarded them with the same disdain shown to tax collectors. Their official title was prohibition judges. But it's interesting because in Aramaic, if you simply exchange one letter... They were called robber judges. And that's what Jesus uses. He calls them robber judges. So that's one character. The next character is the widow. Now, we don't know much about her in this passage. 
But there's, there's much that we can learn about what the passage doesn't say and how widows were to be treated in this society. She's only described by her actions. She keeps coming at the judge with a plea for justice. Give me justice against my adversary. Now she does this day after day after day after day after day. And and so we can think of her as a squeaky wheel. I think we all know folks who are squeaky wheels. They keep after you and bringing it up and talking about it. And, right? And it, it can be tiresome, right? But think about this. This is a woman who was, had been treated unjustly. And she was asking the judge to grant her request. But there's more that we can learn here. She's not just any widow. She is a widow without any male relative in her life. No son, no nephew, no male cousin, no uncle, none at all. Because if there were a male relative, that male relative was responsible for her well-being. So that's why we know there's no male relative in her life. Second, we can also learn that she was destitute or certainly in very poor circumstances. Because if she had any resources, she would have hired someone to represent her. Because as a woman, she wasn't welcome in the courts. Certainly not in the religious courts. But the other thing is that no woman of respectability would have been in the court of a robber judge. So this tells us that she was, she was absolutely in need. But there's a third, and I will say set of characters, not just one person, but a, a, a group that's represented not only in the story itself, but they're represented in Jesus' listening audience. And this was a group called the Jewish leaders and the elite. God has a lot to say in his word about how we are to treat and how we're to be involved in those who are poor, those who are downtrodden, and especially the case of widows and orphans. Exodus chapter 22 says this, You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Wow. Wow. Isaiah chapter 1. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Deuteronomy 24. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. Those are just three examples in Scripture. So we have the characters in summary. The judge, who is a vile character, totally reprehensible, but one who ultimately administers justice 
We have the widow who represents the lowest of the low in this particular society. And then we have the religious elite who, according to Scripture, should have been taking care of this widow. She shouldn't have had to resort to going to the courts because those who were paying attention to God's Word, who actually honored God's Word, and it just didn't say it with their lips but also lived it out, would have been taking care of her. So again, keep the characters in mind. So now let's dig a little bit more into the story. Again, Jesus doesn't tell us how long that the widow is seeking justice, but it seems to be a protracted period of time. She did so to the point of being annoying. In fact, there's some interesting language here, and, and it's, it's literally fighting language. And a literal translation would be that, that she was giving the judge a black eye, right? Kind of the, but I don't think she literally gave him a back, black eye. But again, she was fighting and contending for her rights. And she was such an irritant that the judge finally relents. Can you imagine this? He's, he's sitting at his bench or whatever he was sitting, and, and, and day after day. So in the beginning, okay, she's annoying, but okay, she'll go away. Oh, she's back again. You know, come on, we just go away? And he just wears him down. And so finally he relents and gives in. And I think we can all relate to that sometimes. Because he certainly didn't help her out of the goodness of his heart. Because remember in verse 4, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet, oh, because she's bothering me, I'll help her. So she just gets out of here. So it's more just, it's actually really a selfish reason he's help, trying, helping her. Because he's tired of dealing with her. wants her to go away. So what does this all mean? Not only in that period of time, but what is Jesus trying to teach us through this story? Reminder, verse 1, Jesus gives us the answer. That they ought always to pray and never lose heart. Jesus finishes up the story with a series of questions. Later in the passage... And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, I want to pause and acknowledge that I don't know about you, but I know during this season where people have been so impacted by COVID. Whether physically, and I know people who have been, become sick, others who have died. We've had a number of our leaders in our Converge movement who have lost loved ones uh, because of this in, in, in incredible virus. I know that many have been impacted financially because of 
uh, again, work, either being laid off or job loss, and the financial impact. And through this season, you can wonder, and I acknowledge this, God, God, where are you? Where are you when all this stuff, all this evil is happening? And that's why my prayer has been, God, what are you trying to show us? What are you trying to teach us? How can we as your people stand as followers of Jesus Christ? And how can your church rise up to serve in such a way that we can make your magnificent name known? Because not what we are doing, but because what, of what you are doing through us. And so I acknowledge that, that it's been hard, for I think, for us as believers. Because we can have doubt, doubts that creep in. And I don't think it's, it needs to be lost on us that, that the evil one does not want the gospel going forth. He doesn't want the church to advance. And so he can use these circumstances to pick away at us, to create doubt, to create feelings of being inferior or, well, you know, God isn't in control. But I stand here to say God is in control. We don't always understand how He is work and what He is doing through these circumstances, but He is at work. The gospel is going forth. And so what this passage is talking about, it's not just any type of prayer that Jesus is teaching on here. In the previous chapter, Luke 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the coming of his kingdom and the judgment that will be visited on the wicked. So the type of prayer that Jesus is talking about here is prayer of vindication. Being vindicated means proven right or justified. Jesus is making a point that that while his disciples, and ultimately we, we are his disciples, while we await his coming, his second coming, the world is seemingly, well, not seemingly, the world is growing more and more wicked. There's a term in physics called entropy, things moving towards destruction. But that's not to wallow in that, but it's to, to know that, that Jesus is coming. We have great hope in that. But he's teaching us that we are to keep praying, even in the midst of this, and not lose heart. He is teaching us that we are to be like the persistent widow who is caught up in unjust circumstances. As Christians, we will be objects of unjust action within an unjust world. He is also teaching that we are not, and opposites here, we are not to be like the religious elite who didn't follow God's word to provide love and care for widows and orphans. He is also teaching us that God is not like the unjust judge. Remember, the judge ultimately granted her request, but he did it out of his own selfish reasons. Whereas when God answers, he does so in a way that's loving, gracious, caring, attentive, 
He is at work for our good. And we can cry out to him day and night. Vindication is something that we can all desire because of the injustices committed towards us in life. Maybe we have been treated unjustly in certain ways. But it's worth noting and worth talking about a little bit. David, the king in Psalms, has a great way of looking at this in Psalm 26. He says this, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes. I walk in your faithfulness. I won't read the whole psalm, but read that, Psalm 26, and look at how King David is crying out to the Lord. A couple phrases jump out, and it's very interesting. He says, first, he leads off, I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, try me, test my heart and mind. I walk in your faithfulness. And David says more as he finishes the psalm, but as for me... He repeats this phrase again. I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me. Be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. What David is doing here in this psalm, not only is he crying out and crying up, but he's describing his relationship with his heavenly Father. And, and as you look at this, re, this relationship as described here, it can only come out of David's daily walk with the Lord. The Hebrew term for heart and mind are the words for kidneys and heart. That's interesting, right? And in the Hebrew mind, the kidneys or innards were the organs driving our emotions and motives. The heart was driving our thinking and will. David was in effect saying, look at my heart and mind with your all-penetrating eyes and see that I belong to you wholly. And in a way, he's asking the question, are my motives and my desires pure? David in Psalm 139 Similar wording, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. When we come to God in prayer, it isn't a carte blanche for just asking for whatever we want. That's the emphasis there. It's whatever we want. You know, wants and needs are different things. And I think I'll confess that when I bring my prayers to God, often it's, it's out of my selfishness. It's what I want for me. And I think we, we can all recognize that that isn't always healthy. And more often than not, those are, the, those are where God answers, mm, no. No, that's not the best for you, Tim. 
Prayer is a way that helps us to align our hearts with God's heart so that his righteous ways can be revealed. So what does this mean for us practically? First, God wants to hear our prayers. You have a concern, a a need versus want. God is interested in our prayers because he is interested in us. But I'm going to come back to this word, posture or comportment. It's vitally important how we approach God. That's one of the awesome things about worship. Because when we come together to worship here in this place, and, and your, the worship team here has, did a great job of leading us into his presence. Because that helps prepare us not only to be open and hear the word, but to help align our hearts with God's heart. And so you may have heard this before, but I want to give you a little bit of a tool to use as you come to the Lord in prayer. Because oftentimes when we pray, it, it can be, I won't say this about you, but I'll say this about me. It might be that I jump right to the request, you know, right there where I'm going to bring my request. And yes, God wants to hear our requests. But more so, he wants our hearts to be aligned with his again so that we can hear what his righteous purposes are for our lives. So a simple tool, ACTS, A-C-T-S, when we come into prayer, adoration. Spend time giving adoration and praise to God for who he is. Two, confession. Spend time confessing our faults before God because we have them, like it or not, we are not perfect people. We, we blow it every day. Three, thanksgiving. Thanking God for his incredible mercy in forgiving our sins and what he has done for us by providing a way through Jesus Christ. And then we bring our requests. Supplication. And an interesting thing happens when we follow that type of practice. It doesn't need to be exactly like that. But when we spend time praising God, confessing our sins, giving Him thanksgiving, oftentimes I know this is true of me that my prayer requests don't look the same. What I brought or was thinking to bring, it's like, (laughs) oh, that was selfish. That was a want not a need. So try that as you spend time in prayer. So again, God wants to hear our prayers. Two, God is able to answer our prayer whatever it is. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Third, God wants our hearts to be in the right place when we cry out to him. We can't say to God, take care of my problem or take care of my enemies, but but don't look at my sin. No. 
James chapter 4, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So what hope do we have as God's people who are both in need of vindication but also the righteousness that God requires? Again, I mentioned first that when we come together and worship, that's that aligning activity that helps us get in tune with where God is. But privately, too, we must every day spend time in worship, reading His Word, and praying. Because again, what we do here on a Sunday morning is only the culmination of that which we did throughout the week. That helps prepare us for when we come together corporately. Psalm 69 teaches us that even in the crushing challenges of life, we are to offer up a sacrifice of praise. I'll, I'll, I'll say this, that can be difficult, right? Because there are times when we, we come in here, and if you're listening online, there are times when, boy, I don't feel like giving a sacrifice of praise because I'm just beat down by whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. But yet, that's what we are to do. David, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. So we are to offer up the sacrifice of praise. And number four, God offers his grace that brings about redemption and ultimate Vindication. Now I have to share this. Vindication may not happen in this life. There's a movement in, in churches today that, that if we're not receiving something, a blessing materially, that, that there's something wrong with us. Or our prayers, if they're not answered the way we think they should be answered, that God is not showing us favor. God may not answer the prayer in the way we think it should be answered. He may not take away circumstances that are in our lives until ultimately we are in glory with Him. But nonetheless, the lesson from the, from the assistance to the widow is that we're, that we're continually to bring that request before Him. Because it's really in prayer we're acknowledging God for who He is, juxtaposed against who we are not. In prayer we are acknowledging that God is the ruler, the majestic being in this universe. He is holy, He is righteous, and we are not. That's what prayer is doing. We're acknowledging that we are not in control, and He is. And so He may not always answer the prayers in the way we think He should in this life. Jim Cimbala, pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, puts it this way. That evening when I was at my lowest, confounded by obstacles, bewildered by the darkness that surrounded us, Unable even to continue preaching, I discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. 
Now, I have to say this. That's counterintuitive in our society today. Humility and weakness. But God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need Him. Our weakness, in fact, makes room for His power. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me on the platform as I, as I come to a close. And as a people, I want to ask you to do something right now. I'd like you to just adopt a posture of prayer, whatever that looks like for you, posture of reverence. That means closing your eyes, close your eyes, bowing your head, bow your head, whatever that looks like for you. I want us to do some reflection and self-examination as the team prepares to, to lead us out of worship. So question. What does your prayer life look like? What do your prayers sound like? Do you even have a prayer life? I know this has been a brief time to ponder those questions. But I want you to take that with you as you go today. And if you found yourself wanting in the area of prayer, I know I, know I can do way more than I am at this point in time. If you're not praying at all, it's like the Nike slogan, do it, start. Start praying with someone. Start praying with your spouse. Start praying with your children. Start praying with a friend. Pray, expecting that God will hear and He will answer. Our gracious God, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the privilege we've had to come together, to look into Your Word, to raise our voices to You in praise. Father, I pray that as we have heard your word by your spirit, that you would teach us how we are to be different, how we are to adjust in our lives so that we follow you more closely. So, Father, we also want to pray in such a way that, that you help us to become imitators of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave so much for us that we could have a relationship with you. We pray this in his name. Amen.